second lesson comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. As we continue in our series, What is Christianity? We're again approaching prayer in Scripture. As Martin Luther described prayer as natural for the Christian's life, that it should be mirroring the beating human heart, always in motion and a necessity to life. So we are going to continue pursuing prayer. This text today, selected from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica, echoes the same sentiment. We hear the echo in each line. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The truth in this text is that God invites us, his redeemed children, to daily receive his gifts and to commend our lives to his care. As Paul explains in this text as he closes out this letter to the church, he suggests an attitude of prayerfulness, continual personal fellowship with God, and a consciousness of being in his presence throughout each day. Today we will once again look to the example set by our Lord Jesus Christ and how we approach prayer in the Lord's Prayer. It is of course called this because it is a model of prayer that he gave to us. So it is to be given, but it is also ours to carry forward. Not only this, but that the prayer itself also speaks to the kind of balance between God and his people. We pray for his kingdom to come to our lives, our relationships, into our homes, We pray that his will be done in our lives. We pray for his forgiveness for our sins and his provision for our daily needs. It's also important to remember the framework of the prayer and that he's telling us to not simply memorize the words contained in the prayer, but rather to deeply understand the ideas and principles within it and express them truly from our hearts. So in that way, we can understand the Lord's Prayer not just as the right set of words to pray, but rather the position of prayer that comes from a right heart. We've spent a great deal of time talking about the first words of the Lord's Prayer, and rightly so. Our Father in heaven. What deeper ideas do we see in that simple phrase? God is above us. God is our loving and caring Father. We've also talked about the four next words in the prayer. Hallowed be your name. To ask God to let his name be worshipped, exalted, and adored on earth as it is in heaven. And finally, we talked about the fact that praying for the ultimate goal of God's name being glorified means everything despite the outcome of what we are praying for. In other words, as theologian Robert Law puts it, prayer is a mighty instrument, not forgetting man's will done in heaven, but forgetting God's will done on earth. This is a big deal for us to understand as we try to grow spiritually and in prayer. This means that the goal of our praying isn't to inform God of just what we want and our needs because he surely knows our needs. And it should be to convince God to do things our way. Instead, the goal of prayer is to be ready for us to be obedient to how God responds to our prayers, honoring and glorifying him throughout. So let's look to the next part of the prayer to focus on. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. At simple face value, 
This seems simple enough, like something that doesn't need to be explained in great detail. It is one simple verse declaring that what that you want God to do what he declares. It shouldn't be that tough for us to handle, except that it is. Because the truth is that with so many of our prayers, we are asking God to do what we want. We need God to help us with something. We see a problem that he needs to fix. We know someone who God needs to heal. We want him to bend to us and our needs and our wants. Sometimes when I think about how I approach prayer with this idea of asking God to do his will through me, and also thinking it should look a lot like the plan I also had in mind. It's like the scene from the classic Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Of course, we're talking about the Gene Wilder version, not the weird one we don't talk about. (laughs) But do you guys remember Veruca Salt? She wanted it. She wanted everything, and she wanted it now. She was written purposely as a horrible and spoiled character, and I can't help but feel a little bit like that when I think about how I approach prayer with God sometimes. Maybe sometimes you can relate to that as well. While this may seem a little extreme, it should make us pause and think about how we approach God in prayer when we simply pray for what we want and when we want it and how we want it. But the idea in this is simple. This verse is quite the opposite of that kind of attitude and character. When we say to God, your kingdom come, your will be done, it is all about authority. The plea of this part of the Lord's Prayer doesn't include us. It is not about us. This is a reminder that we are not the authority. We are not in charge. When we ask for God's kingdom to come, there is a not-so-subtle reminder that it is his kingdom and we are not the king. He is the one and only king of the heavenly kingdom, and he is authority. He calls the shots. This obviously rubs a lot of us the wrong way, because in reality, we all sometimes have a little bit of Veruca salt in us. That part of us that demands to be on our own throne, king of our own kingdoms. And when we approach prayer as we are the only ones to think about, our prayer will obviously be misled. The heart of this prayer is for our mindset and our attitude to be shifted more towards the truth. The truth that God is the one and only king, and he knows better than us, period. It is the deep, heartfelt belief that God is the only possible authority for our lives, even better than what we tell ourselves. So when it comes to prayer, it's a reminder for us to know that God is king. And we are praying that he will rule as king on earth the same way that he rules in heaven. We're praying for him to have that divine authority over us and that immediately cancels out our own ideas and thoughts of being our own kings and own rulers. So on the one hand, we are submissively giving ourselves into his mighty rule because he is powerful and right to be king over all of us. But the second issue is not an issue of authority. It's an issue of desire. With God, it works both ways. Yes, he is the mighty king of the universe, God in heaven, that we rightly talk about and worship every week. But at the same time, he is also our loving and caring father. So in our prayer, we should pray for his kingdom to come to earth because he is king. But also we should pray that whatever he wants, whatever he wills, and whatever his desires are to be done. We are praying that we will want what God wants because we know and trust what he wants is good. Our desire and prayer should always be that his will and desire are to be done. 
So if we're praying for God's kingdom to come to earth and for his will to be done here like it is done in heaven, what does that kingdom look like? If someone were to ask you what the kingdom of heaven is, of God is like or what it means when we say it at church, what would you say? There are a few qualities of the kingdom of heaven that we can expect to see as this prayer is fulfilled. And I know this can be confusing because the kingdom of God sometimes feels or seems vague and far off and distant. The first thing we need to understand as believers, even though we just can't explain all the details of what heaven is like, is that the kingdom of heaven is completely different and exceedingly better than what we can know. As I hope you understand, though much of our world is a glorious reflection of the greatness of God, and we see the glory of God through his creation, we also know that our world was altered and broken by sin. We marred God's good creation with our sin. So what was originally a glorious reflection of God's incredible character is now a not-so-good reflection. It looks different. It's twisted in a way. It then should make sense to us the kingdom of heaven is completely different than what we experience here. Things that make our world difficult or challenging, the consequences of the fall, and the effects of our own sins and the sins of others against us, those things simply don't exist in heaven. And so it is vastly different than what we experience here. In Matthew 13, Jesus speaks and teaches through a number of parables that are all about the kingdom of heaven and what it will look like for it to come. He tells the parable of the seeds and the sower and the parable of the weeds. In both those parables, the indication is that there's a significant difference between people that know and accept and love the king and his kingdom and want it to come and those who do not. For many, it'll be a difficult thing to accept. In the parable of the mustard seed, the idea is that the kingdom of heaven is powerful enough that even if only a few people accept it and proclaim it, it will have a massive impact on our world. Then comes the parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value. The hidden treasure is found in Matthew thirteen forty four, and it says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We won't get into a detailed description of the kingdom today, because we need to continue focusing on the prayer. But the message on the surface is clear, that God's kingdom stands out that is better than anything else we can possibly know. The man in the story sells everything he has to gain the treasure of the kingdom of heaven because it is simply that valuable and that good. The second thing that we need to try to wrap our minds around is that the kingdom of God is both spiritual and physical. In John 18.36, when Jesus is being questioned by Pilate after his arrest and before going to the cross, Pilate asked Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. Continuing in Romans 14, 17, Paul is addressing whether believers can eat or drink certain things. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so from these verses, we get the sense that God's kingdom is not some faraway, distant place, but rather a spiritual reality that is just hard for us to understand much like when we try to understand the Holy Trinity. It is the richness and fullness of God's character, his righteousness, his peace, joy, goodness, love, compassion, and grace. 
And these are all spiritual measures. But as we pray and desire for God's will to be done on earth, we are praying for those spiritual things to be recognized in us. So the spiritual reality of heaven will have a physical result here on earth. When we grow in the spiritual quality of grace and compassion and love and peace, and we will see ourselves seeking out ways to make those things happen in our world here and now. This is why we seek to do missional work here at Faith in God's Name and outside its walls, because the spiritual kingdom of God will have physical and real results here. Not only this, but there's the promise that one day God's kingdom will become physically built here, but not yet. <clears throat> this is the last thing that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. We pray for God's kingdom to come as it is in heaven. We have to understand that the kingdom of God is both present and future. We pray for his heavenly kingdom to come to earth and his will to be done now through us because he is the king and he is good. We rely on that goodness as we come to the next part of the prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray specifically, give us this day our daily bread. Excuse me. I think we can all understand this statement is not about us requesting that God give us bread or great harvest, honey, oat, wheat on every Sunday. But rather, it is about rightfully asking God to provide us what we need. Hopefully, we can see the consistency throughout the prayer that if we are asking for God's name to be glorified and his will to be done and for his kingdom to come, then it doesn't really include us making extravagant requests to get all that we want. No, instead, in this part of the prayer, we pray for God to provide for our needs. It isn't about demanding that God give us what we want. It is a simple and humble request for the all-powerful God in heaven to treat you as a son or daughter and to provide for your needs. I want you to see once more the importance of the word our in this, vor- in this verse. I doesn't say, give me my daily bread. It's just about prayerfully asking God to provide just for my needs. It's about each believer praying for one another's needs and their own. We're asking for God to provide all of our needs. In fact, Jesus promises that our loving Father will take care of us. A few verses later in Matthew 6, 26-33, as he teaches his followers not to be anxious about their lives, he says this, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And what you feel by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which stays alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not be more, much more clothed to you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The idea here is simple. That if we ask that God has taken care of the small, or I'm sorry, if we see that God has taken care of the small portions of his creation, like the birds and the flowers, and even the grass, and even made them beautiful, then we can trust that he certainly cares about us and for our needs. God will provide for our needs. 
Jesus follows this up by saying that what we believe is the heart of the Lord's prayer. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This all comes back to and circles around to serving the kingdom of God and living for the glory of his name. He is glorified when we ask for him to supply our daily needs. Because when he does, we can respond with thankfulness and draw attention to the fact that everything we have comes from God, including faith and prayer. We know that Jesus just told us not to worry about worry because God provides for our needs. We pray for him to do so in the Lord's Prayer. But we also know that Jesus promised that following him would not be easy, that we would suffer, that we would be persecuted and be hated in his holy name. We also know that out of the 12 disciples, 11 were killed for their faith. And even more than that, we know that about the state of the world, that there are good Bible-believing, Jesus-following Christians who have and are starving to death. So how then do we reconcile these things? Excuse me. If we look to Psalm 23, many have heard this famous psalm before. David starts by saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. In other words, David is using the imagery of God shepherding him and guiding him, providing for his needs. And he states very clearly that as God guides him, he will not want for anything. In other words, all his needs will be met. He's taken care of by the shepherd. So when we see that God supplies our needs, we see a reflection of that truth. And then two verses later, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and staff, they come for me. There's an important distinction here that the good shepherd does not cause the pain and the death and the sorrow that we go through. But we do trust that the good shepherd takes care of our needs. And if the shepherd is taking care of our needs, then why would he lead us to a dark and dangerous valley where there is pain and difficulty and even death? The answer simply must be because there is something better on the other side of that valley. The only reason a shepherd would lead a sheep into danger is if it was ultimately for their good, to move them past it. Even leading them through the difficulty, the shepherd has a good plan that will end with the good of the sheep. It is the same way for us. When we pray asking God to give us what we need to live as he most surely will, and even if he doesn't in that moment, he is still a good shepherd because he's leading us to something better. All because he has given us the one thing that we need most, we see in the next verse of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts. Yes, we can ask God to supply our needs, and we should. But we have to realize that even if he doesn't in that moment, he has already supplied our greatest need, which is forgiveness. Our greatest need is forgiveness, and it has been given to us through Jesus Christ. You've probably heard this first translator said a couple different ways. You've heard, forgive us our debts or trespasses, or sins. The little translation is closest to debts. Something that we owe to God is the one who has freely provided for us. We're asking God not to charge us for all that we've been given by him. The reason is often rightly translated to sins is because of the verses that follow in Matthew six fourteen through 15, which clearly make the tie to sins that we commit against one another and, of course, against God. 
So hopefully we can see that after we ask God to provide for physical needs here on this earth, we are also asking and thanking him for the fact that he has provided for our greatest need by sending his only son to be the payment for our debt. Jesus paid the price for our sins, giving us access to the kingdom of God, which lies beyond the valley of shadow of death and doubt. So even when we face hardship and death, we know that a greater kingdom is waiting for us because of the price paid for us by Jesus. By him, our debt is paid, our sins are forgiven, and God is glorified even in our suffering and death. Which leads to the next portion of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, or rather, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. It is our responsibility, calling to forgive others because of the forgiveness that was given to us by Christ. Our greatest need has been met by a great Father in heaven. Not only does he constantly provide our needs here, but he has promised and provided a wonderful and worthy pasture on the other side of the valley of death. This is huge. And our understanding of our own forgiveness given freely through the blood of Christ should change the way we treat others and how we approach prayer. This is how God's name is hallowed, how he is glorified, when we and his people display to others the grace and forgiveness that has already been given to us. If we are truly people that want his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth, then that means that we will display his quality to others, starting with forgiveness. It is both a privilege and a heavy responsibility. How will the world know that we have been forgiven by the way that we forgive others? Again, in these verses, we see the heart of this prayer. Thankfulness for who God is and what he has done, and a desire to bend ourselves to his will and his ways, to make ourselves more like Christ. He has provided for all of us so much more than we need, including the most desperate need that we have for our Father to forgive us of our sins. We let that lead us and motivate us to continue to repent and turn away from sin, as well as be forgiving to those who sin against us. Let the name of the Lord be glorified and exalted and hallowed when he provides our needs, because he has forgiven us and we forgive others. Let's look now to the next line in the Lord's Prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This phrase leads us to a few questions that I think are very important. First of all, what is temptation? Is temptation alone a sin? After all, like we've heard from Jesus as he taught, that if we even look lustfully, we have already committed adultery in our hearts. So yes, we are responsible for our thoughts. Our very thoughts can be sinful. But is it sinful just to be tempted to do something? Just because a thought crosses your mind, are you already consumed by that sin? What we have to understand is that temptation alone is not always a sin. It is always the moment that you have to choose whether to follow that sin or not. James 1, 14-15 puts it like this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, was conce- when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We can see the picture being painted clearly here. Temptation is when you notice the bait. It's when a sight or an opportunity passes before and you realize that's what you want. 
But the moment that you allow your notice to become a full-grown desire or tension or plan, that is when it grows to a sin. Think of King David in the Old Testament. David had to make a choice of whether to continue in his temptation or to walk away. As most of you probably know, David makes a choice to continue to look and act in ways that led to a sin, which leads him to fall into a deeper and more dangerous pattern of sin that eventually leads to huge ramifications for him and others. The temptation alone wasn't the sin. It was the notice of the opportunity to sin. And sadly, he took it. In addition, we know that Jesus himself was tempted in the wilderness. Opportunities to sin were placed directly before him. But we know that he didn't give them a second thought and he never sinned. So temptation, again, is not a sin alone. It is simply when you notice the opportunity to sin. And so we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Does this mean that God then tempts us? Would God put us in situations where we are tempted on purpose? Would he put us at risk of doing the things that he has told us not to do? Let's take a look at verse 13 from James 1. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So as you see here, God does not tempt us. God isn't tempted by evil. He is goodness and holiness and righteousness. He has no taste for sin. As our loving Father, he is never the one who gives us the opportunity to sin. He hates the sin. The enemy is the one trying to throw us off track and lead us away. He is the father of lies. And lying and tempting are just some of the ways he leads us astray. So in this line of Lord's Prayer, we aren't asking God to stop tempting us. We aren't begging for God to stop leading us to temptation. We're asking God to help us in those moments where we must make a decision to follow the sin or not. We're asking God to show us the better way, to lead us to be such a deep desire in our hearts that when temptation comes, that we are led in the better way. We want his light and his presence to be so real in our lives and in our hearts and minds that when we have opportunities to sin, we choose instead to follow God's will. We are asking of God, don't allow us to be led into sin, but instead lead us in the way of your kingdom and your righteousness. Lead us to you. We pray for him to deliver us from evil because temptations to sin, to do evil things, will constantly be thrown our way by the enemy. But as we've established with the rest of the prayer, our desire is for God's kingdom. We are praying for a complete change in focus. We want to be so entirely fascinated and absorbed in God's character and God's kingdom that we don't get easily distracted by the temptation to do evil things. This is what we are praying for. We're praying that our view of God would overshadow any temptation for us to sin. Which leads us to the last line of the Lord's Prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. When we say for in this instance, what we mean is because. So we're praying that our view of God would overshadow any temptations that come our way because he is the powerful and glorious king. The kingdom belongs to him, then the entire world is his, made for him, by him, and through him. In him all things are held together. It is all his. The power belongs to only him. Nothing can stand against our God. The glory is his. He is wonderful and beautiful and holy and set apart. 
This is the entire reason that we are delivered from temptation and evil. Because we see the true value of what God has to offer versus the pitiful lie of temptation. And if our eyes are set on him, temptation will fail. The last line is a summary of the whole prayer. Our Father in heaven will be glorified. His kingdom will come. His will is done on earth as it is in heaven. He will provide for our needs, including our greatest need of forgiveness. He will give us the ability to forgive, and he will lead us in his better way, defeating temptation and delivering us from evil, because the kingdom and the power and the glory are all his. Amen.